0: Welcome to the Chartwork Podcast. This is your host, Kushal Mehra. All right. Today's podcast is about Hindophobia in Australia, or as we can call it, Australasia region. And to talk about me, I have with me Malini Gates. Uh, You guys might know her as Sarah Gates on Twitter. Malini, welcome.
1: Namaskar. Thank you for having me. It's such a wonderful introduction. Let me praise you for that relaxing introduction. Whoever came up with that, it's beautiful.
0: Well, I... I came up with that so at least something good I came up with <laughs> <laughs> all right so so as this is Balini this is your first time on the podcast so I'd request you to maybe we can start the discussion by telling everybody a bit briefly about yourself your journey and then maybe we can jump right into the toxicity of indophobia
1: <laughs> oh gosh where do I start uh, I came into the world in Australia in a regional. Town uh, along in this, in actually, I was born uh, for a bit of quirky Austra- 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 Aust- Australiana. I was born in the outback in Queensland near the town called Bilawila, which you may have heard because we had some Sri Lankan refugees uh, or migrants that just went through a, a huge ordeal um and now they're back home in Billow as they call it so i was born near Billow and i i got into yoga when i was a teenager and from there i just kept studying and studying and studying and fell more and more in love with uh the hindu traditions so i think that's a good intro
0: all right fair enough so i guess uh so your introduction to hindu dharma was through the standard uh, way where a lot of people in the west uh, uh, from from backgrounds that are not hindu tend to ex- i guess uh, experience yoga or uh, sadhana as we call it meditation uh, loosely um, and uh, they get introduced into that but uh, all right so you so i is it safe to say now you've been a practicing hindu for more than a decade and a half now easily <laughs>
1: I think you're flattering me there. Um, I started when I was a teenager. (laughs) I think I'm going to take you a little. No, I've been, um, look, I meditated when I was a kid. My dad was a meditator. He did meditation every day. I did Vipassana and then I did Bihar yoga, the whole kit and caboodle integral yoga from 16 and I'm now 44. So add that up. I think it's 28 years. It'll be going on for 29 soon. So it's a while.
0: Well, that's good. Well, you, you, you have a- actually been practicing, uh, um, as they say, Hindu traditions and Hindu um, uh, tools of, uh, or Hindu epistemology far more than many Hindus I know. So <laughs> that, says <a> <laughs> that, that says a lot. Well, I don't
1: know much about puja, and I don't know much about your festivities, which are absolutely fantastic. So I can learn a lot more.
0: Yeah. So, okay, Sarah, so let's start with this. So obviously, uh, today we're talking about something which is going to be very, uh, very disturbing to uh, many uh, viewers who watch this on YouTube or listeners who are going to listen to the audio version of it. So I purposely called it Hinduphobia in Australia, but uh, uh, how do we frame this? So, so where would you start if I was to tell you, okay, Sarah, here you go, or Malini, here you go. This is the this is your platform, this is your talk, this is our subject. So where do we start about the journey of Hinduphobia in the Australasian region?
1: Well, I think it's important to remember that back when the words anti-Hindu and anti-Hindu feeling, which is the precursor for anti-Hindu sentiment, when they first came about in the Australasian region, Australia and New Zealand, and indeed the dominions of the British Empire, it was in the context of um, India, indo Indophobia, Hindus were from Hindustan and so everyone was a Hindu and anti-Hindu feeling actually referred to anybody who was identified as Hindu but they would have been characterised by the kind of tropes that we saw in the Christian missionaries, you know, the demon worshippers, you know, all of the horrible things that they said about pretty much every Indigenous culture plus on top of that the Hindu Traditions that they despised so everybody was kind of cast underneath that Hindustani kind of framework so Hindu phobia went started when um, indentured laborers were being you know forced out of areas and there was an anti-Asiatic League that differentiated between Chinese Japanese and Hindus So that's the beginning. I think of anti-Hindu sentiment or Hindu phobia in this region and yeah, it's, it's a really fascinating story.
0: Okay. So, uh, would, uh, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, wasn't Australia also actively having something called the white Australia policy or something of that sort? Ha- did, did did that ever, uh, step into uh, the treatment of Hindus of any sort? Uh, if I, I don't know, that's what I'm asking.
1: Well, you've gotten onto that very quickly Uh, It did, because there was a a movement for a white-only Australia, and that was part of the justification for these uh, anti-Asiatic leagues. and there were all kinds of tropes, like, oh, you know, they'll start mixing, there'll be a danger to our daughters, and, you know, they'll take over our... um, You know, our farms, they'll take over our means of um, earning a living, and you know, we don't want them mixing too much with society. So, we talked about the yellow peril in Australia, and that's got quite a lot of uh, attention, but we haven't talked about the saffron peril. So, that white Australia policy um, actually inspired some of the um, other countries. So, Canada, particularly, was um, set off a lot by the anti Asiatic activities here in Australia against Hindus. And they were taking tips, they were watching closely. You can read that in the media. So it's really, uh, it's, it's, they're all interconnected, all of these stories.
0: So, so when we say interconnected, could you maybe use a few examples to explain uh, how it plays out in the real world, uh, real world and how it affects people in the physical sense then?
1: Uh, In the physical sense, um, well, we're going back in time when we're talking about this because there were several waves of migration and things changed. In the physical sense, if you're talking about material reality or if you're talking about violence and abuse against persons. I I guess both.
0: I, I guess both, because uh, I guess the, violent and the violence and abuse against people, uh, which is a good thing, would always turn out to be uh, lesser in uh, numbers, because I just think it takes a, a lot more to become uh, physically violent against the community in case of uh, you know, law and order machinery too. But uh, we can talk about those examples too. But more about the stereotypes that I guess communities have to face. Like, I'll give you an example. Uh, when it came to hindu women wearing a uh, bindi uh people uh, for people who don't know uh because i have a few westerners also watching this podcast westerners who are not hindu like you so uh, bindi would be the uh, the red dot guys <laughs> so it's i yeah, guess, yeah so so you know you have stuff like that happening to hindu communities in the 80s um that obviously, luckily, uh, in the New Jersey area that used to happen in, in the United States of America, the, that used to happen at that point of time. But uh, those were specific uh, attacks that were physical. And um, my, my question more was that uh, these attitudes that, that are shaped, like what kind of pressures do the community does the community face in Australia? Like, are there specific insinuations? So I'll give you an example. I love cricket. Uh, so there was this case a while ago where a racist slur were used, very specific racist slur. That's a very Aussie racist slur, by the way. I, that, I don't think so. that racist slur is used in uh, in the United States of America or Canada. They use the slur curry munchers. Uh, oh, yeah,
1: curry munchers. That's the kind of thing that they'd say at school. Yeah, so, so interestingly, just before we move on, that term is um, used in Australian schools where they've got – you know, cyber, they've got bullying programs in schools, so we're kind of trying to move forward against bullying in the last couple of decades particularly, but um, curry muncher was a popular term when I was a kid at school, so it was, you know, normalised to be abusive in that way, and Hindu kids, according to one study from Australian National University on racism in schools, in New South Wales they did a study and they found of all the religions, it was the Hindu kids that faced the most religious bullying at school. So I'm sure that that would hold true in, in the schoolyard and it certainly would in the pub. If you If you went to the pub, you'd probably hear those kind of terms. It's um, probably more of a an outback kind of redneck type of term that you would hear today because it's not cool to be racist in the leafy suburbs. So it's not cool to say those kind of things anymore. But you still have uh, that Australian, you know, racist, red, redneck type of culture. And it does slip off the tongue, you know, when, when uh, blokes have had a few too many drinks and, you know, they probably try not to say those kind of things, but they will if they're excited and, and the lid comes off. So, yeah, that, that happens.
0: Okay, but, but, uh, but if I was to be extremely accurate, that would be a general slur, right? It would not be specifically about Hindus, right? Were there any specific slurs used against Hindus specifically, like uh, which were only specific to Hindu community? Because a
1: brown man, uh, any brown person
0: would be called a curry muncher, right?
1: Well, there weren't many Hindus around when I was uh, growing up in my school. So the the most, um, you know, the the more uh, recent wave came out in that sort of period of neoliberalisation after the 80s. And then they started to bring out people that were skilled migrants. And so this kind of thing would happen more in a university setting and schools for that generation. So I missed out on that. Um, the slurs that we've got today are things that we've seen in the UK, you know, the cow piss drinker, the, the cow, the gobba brain, um, you know, this Pajit term, this. Um, but I don't know if they're using uh, the words kuffa or mushrik like we saw in the UK in schools. That would be deeply disturbing if we had that happening. Um, are you talking about terms? Uh, curry muncher is definitely something that would be used against Hindus in in Australia. But okay. what they did on the what they did on a cricket pitch in Adelaide last year was they threw beef mints on the cricket pitch to stop uh-huh. the, the yeah it's that I, kind of thing.
0: Okay. You don't
1: eat beef. You you know you're a vegetarian. What do you eat?
0: Interesting. Interesting. All right. Yeah. Well, beer does tend to have a weird sort of effect on people is all I can say. Uh, um, it, it is what it is. It, it is what it is. Yeah. But, but what, what do you do now? Uh, let's get into this particular aspect, which I was fascinated by. I, I did read your essay on the Australia dot com dot au, which was called uh, kick Hindophobia out of Australia. That's a very specific uh, essay that deals with a long journey that you've had as a Hindu academic, you because you start, and I quote, you start by saying, I write as a concerned Hindu academic in Australia due to a pattern of bullying by Dean's chair in the communication at Massey University School of Communication, Journalism and Marketing. Now, I don't want to talk about this specific story, but I want to make it uh, larger about uh, what you were talking about over here was basically Hindu phobia in, in, in academia, right? It's a very specific academic experience where certain uh, epistemologies or ways of looking at the world tend to affect Hinduism. And they, they present Hinduism or India in a specific way. And you you just shared a particular experience of a particular professor uh with that you had and it's quite a detailed journey but but if we could maybe talk about it in a larger sense in in academy and general and and uh, and and my request you could use excerpts from that particular instance itself but uh let's say for example there was this infamous uh, dismantling global hindutva conference also you know a lot of uh, tropes that come against hindus now which uh, hindus were warning at that point of time were, they, they kept on saying, look, these people are doing certain things. This will be, there, there is always a dilution of discourse, right? People try to say thing X, that gets diluted and generalized and it is applied on all other people. So in, in academia in general, how how is it being a Hindu? Okay, um okay, so...
1: There's so many different fields that you could look at. I mean, if you want to talk about Indology, people have already talked about that. They've talked about, well, I mean, I studied Kashmir Shaivism, and I was looking for knowledge about the culture of the, the Kashmiri pandits. So I wanted to know what their story was, what their background was. So when I came into this study, I didn't just want to take the philosophy, which is what was happening in academia, They were talking a lot about the sanskrit but they weren't weren't including the people from which that knowledge came so i wanted to know more about that and fortunately i got to you know spend some time and get to know the uh, kashmir panda community through my studies and if i hadn't done that i wouldn't have known anything at all because they're basically omitted from the discourse and where they are amidst, where they are included, it becomes a political discourse. So they were brahminical, they were oppressors. It was, um, you know, it was therefore justified that, um, you know, they were, uh, you know, they were cast out. And this type of rhetoric I started to see coming from, you know, the South Asian scholars type community when the Kashmir issue of uh, abrogation and all of this became, you know, world news that politicization in the discourse actually goes back decades so this isn't sort of like new it's just a culmination and they've produced layers and layers the same thing for saffron terror so if you go back to saffron terror it's you know it's it's a few decades old but it's it's come up more recently in the last two so um, they've built layers and layers of discourse about hindutva extremists and or hindu Nationalists and they've sort of phrased it very, you know, loosely as they go and then they've tightened up this type of theory. And then you've got more, um, you know, sociology. You've got the, the pro-Palestinian, pro-Kashmiri separatist and you've got this um, talk about Muslim genocide in India and they kind of all converge into this Hindutva equal Zionism Israel and India, their best buddies, and um, you know uh, Hindutva extremists and Zionists uh, equate to white supremacists and Nazis and all this type of rhetoric that started to build up. And then they've got this other sort of thing that's like the Brahminical patriarchal oppressors and they were Aryans and they came in and they invaded. So we've got that Aryan invasion and then you've got like... Um, Uh, scientific determinism, uh, biological determinism, scientific racism, eugenics, all of it builds and builds, right? So this has been going on for such a long time that people, like, believe this stuff. I mean, even I was taught that Aryans, you know, uh, Aryans were the culture from which yoga came. And it took me a long time of actual study to figure out, hang on a second, no, that's not right. That's not how it happened. It, it's, you know, it's evolved over millennia. Um, so there's a lot to um, pick through. Is it is it deliberately Hindu phobic? Is it politically um, motivated? Is it racism? Is it Indo Indo-phobia? I think it's a bit of everything because they omit the actual knowledge of the people. They omit the voices of the people and they reconstruct their entire culture um, according to an agenda that suits them, so it is Hindu phobic in that sense. So they they've got like this type of um, re- revisionist approach to what Hinduism is, like it's the Vedic, it's the Brahminical, it's not the tribal, it's not the traditional, it's not the indigenous, and and you know not 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 all the way through. So when you come up with something like Tantra, I've got Abhinava gupta from a thousand years ago. He was a Brahmin doing like kola practice he, he was a Brahmin doing full you know left hand maybe not doing but definitely writing about left hand tantra methods so it, it just didn't make any sense to me when i started reading the academic discourse that's why i had to go and meet some i had to integrate you know what i'd read um and then what i knew from the shastras and i'd be like this doesn't match up so Uh, That's why I got interested in um, cultural representations of Hindus and how Hindus have been maligned and vilified and then how that then translates into how Hindus are treated. And that is a long journey. That starts from in the, well, it was in colonisation period, but as Hindus moved out, it went through the um, indentured labour movement, which basically just replaced slavery. Hindus were treated abysmally um, and... I mean, I've, I, I would wonder how much of that mentality went into that outsourcing that we did in the neoliberal era when, you know, we had techies, we had everything outsourced to Asian countries and we paid them next to nothing, treat them abysmally. They wouldn't be entitled to award wages or working conditions. How much of that is treating uh, Indian Indians as coolies? So it, it took quite a while, I think, for that attitude to change. As Hindus have taken more uh, prominent places in society uh, in the West, so in you know, academia, um, there's not a lot of Hindus in academia doing humanities work. And those schools, which are you know Hindu schools, they're not teaching the Hinduism that Hindus recognise for themselves. It's in the in academia, so it's um. It's very complicated, but I do think that that um, there, there is a relationship between the skilled labourers that's come out and the positions that they've been given and taken in society, as compared to some of the people that have come out from India and they're doing humanities. They tended to be more Marxist, more um, communist orientated, and we've now we've got um, quite a lot of dalit type scholars in the West, and you know they they're not real happy with Hindus, not real happy with Brahmins, and this has created a mess. So they're saying that Hindu phobia doesn't exist. That's the problem.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. So basically, what we have is uh, this seems to be a very unique case with Hindus. Now, I I personally blame, partially blame, not uh, partially blame, not entirely, but partially the hindu community to do for their follies because like you said they did not invest in social sciences so when you don't invest in social sciences where you, when you're not doing it somebody's going to do it for you so it's it this doesn't happen in the japanese studies department doesn't happen in the chinese studies department does not happen in the islamic studies department where uh, people with uh, the uh, as they say skin in the game are not even asked uh, uh, about what do they think about something like I I, I don't know how to say it. like I use Audrey as an example because I have never met a person in my life with more nerve than Audrey where she has the nerve to tell basically the entire community that you don't know nothing about your own faith. you have your your lived experience does not matter at all. Your, you, the way you have been raised to look at the world through your Hindu lens does not matter. I'm gonna tell you. That's pretty much what happens in in academia. Now, while on the one hand, the Hindu community was more of the Hindu community that went into these uh, countries, primarily we are talking about Western countries to be very even more specific, the, primarily the Hindus that went to Western countries, because I, I, I've spoken to Caribbean Hindus, uh, their issues are different, actually. They're uniquely different from uh, Western, uh, Western Hindu community. Now you go into the West and you see all these experiences happening. And now you're stuck with what to do but but i want to talk about this this aspect and you you've spoken about it too a lot of times this entire stick of hindutva being used to beat everyone up first of all i have been very open about it which is why i actually did a monologue which i i categorically stated i am hindutva if you're going to use this as a slur to shut me up for basically raising sensible points then you know what? I'll start by the nomenclature itself. I'll own the word. For me, it's like that. I'm owning it now. But what is this whole thing? Like uh, they said Hindutva and Hinduism are different, but then the dismantling Hindu, the global Hindutva conference happened and speaker after speaker. And, you know, these are not speakers from the West. These are speakers of India. Like you said, these <laughs> are Indians who speak. Now, what I find is this is such a convenience. you know, this is a marriage of convenience where they want to say, they being the ones in the West, want to say a few things. If they say it, they can always be accused of racism. I don't know how else to say it. They find Indians who will say what they want to say. And it's like, you know, the words are theirs, the face is somebody else's. And <laughs> this this is a very convenient marriage and it, it happens, but what's with it? Like what when, If I was to walk into an average Aussie on a New Zealand University and say I am sympathetic to Hindutva,
1: what are they going to think I am? I'm laughing because um, they probably wouldn't know for the most part and I think it's a good reminder Uh, you know we hear a lot about this you know in media articles which as he pointed out they're often written by diaspora members of the community, the diaspora community Okay, so a lot of the media that we've been reading, if you look at who's writing it, a a lot of it is actually written by persons of either Indian or South Asian, uh, as they like to call it, origin. And beyond this little bubble that we live in, um, I don't know how much the rest of Australia knows. I think that they're probably afraid of Modi. Uh, They're probably becoming fearful about Hindu nationalism. Um, and they probably wrongly associate Hindutva, if they know what that word is, with some kind of extremism-like uh, terrorism. Uh, and, you know, they're being, they're being made afraid constantly. But is that our agenda uh, nationally? I, I don't think this is an Australian national agenda. I think these people have got their little foothold in the media. And it makes for sensation. And as you know, the media loves a bit of sensation. Uh, America, I can't say, they've got, you know, quite established media platforms like New York Times and the Washington Post, that, and even um, Time. Time did that hit job on Modi with the, you know, the, the real black, you know, grim looking image. I was afraid when I went to India in 2014 I thought, oh, my goodness, you know, what's going on? And then I started talking to people on the street and I said, what do you think about Modi? And they were like, oh, Modi's great. You know, we love Modi. And what do you think about Yogi Adityanath? And, he, you know, especially, you know, the young men were like, we, we, I was in Kashi asking these questions. We love Yogi. We love Yogi. And I thought, this is a democratic country. Who am I? To, to even speculate, you can vote for who you like. That's your that's your power as as a voter, as a citizen. Um, and so then I started questioning why is it that the West are producing this spectre, you know, of a man. I think that has a lot to do with how Hindus are being perceived in in Australia and other diasporas, uh, to do with this demonisation of this Hindu nationalism.
0: So. So would it be safe to assume that this is just an extension of uh, foreign policy then?
1: I don't think it's in our foreign policy, policy because we've got very strong relationships building with India. So if we were worried about Modi, we definitely wouldn't be investing so much in long term commitments like we are like um, defense commitments, um, education commitments we've even, even uh, we've got medical I think even medical tech, technological green technology I mean they just keep coming out with all of these fantastic ideas. So mm-hmm. I would be reluctant to say it has anything to do with our government but I think that the media um, have certain vested interests, a, a certain small clique of people, Uh, who want Modi out and and they've got their foot in the door and they push anyone out and they stop stories from being run. I have heard stories have been placed on editors' tables and they've been, you know, dismissed. Um, I have had a question be asked of the Hindu Council of Australia whether or not they would continue to allow me to talk about Hindu phobia. Now I was asked. They were asked that question of me. I wasn't even sent any questions. I wasn't allowed to be part of it. So they had, yeah, okay. <laughs> this it was a hit job, um, on on Hindutva um, from the ABC, which is a tax um, payer funded, uh, you know, uh, corporation. They asked questions of of uh, Hindu council um, that I had been accused of, I think, I think I'd think i been accused of hate speech or something, right? And whether or not they would continue to allow me to conduct talks, they accused them of having a problem with Islamophobia because some person had given some talk at one point. And the other people that were giving information about this topic are um, actively involved in... Um, campaigning against uh, Hindus in Australia. And so when Hindu Council sent me this message, I sent an email straight away to the ABC and said, hey, what's going on? I wasn't even asked my opinion about this, but you're, you're asking them to deplatform platform me. Uh, that's not uh, journalistic integrity. I mean, th- what's this got to do with me? That's, it had nothing to do with me. So they they want to put me up as some kind of Hindutva uh, organiser or Hindutva um, leader and and, and part of hate groups and, um, you know, running a hate campaign and all this type of stuff is going on in the background and this journalist was actually playing along with it. So how's that? I mean, I would have sued them had they brought this out. I would have sued them.
0: See, th- this is what fascinates me, right? The level of uh, freedom that they take with the Hindu community, with the kind of slander that comes out. I remember recently in the United Kingdom, uh, an op-ed was published. Uh, I think it was by Sunny Hundal. And then they had to take it down. And the nonsense that was written in that, in that particular op-ed. Now, Malini, what scares me is that when you start writing about these stereotypes, yes, a lot of people, luckily as of now, people don't read mainstream media. a well, good thing. You know, people, people still just don't have the time. People like to move on with their lives. So they're not busy hating each other <laughs> beyond a point. You know, nobody likes to hate each other beyond a the point. They're like, even if I have to hate you, damn it, capitalism has to, uh, has kind of forced us to live with each other. So in that sense, uh, we we are kind of stuck with each other now. But the point is there are stereotypes that are created when you write these articles. Now in, so I've been traveling uh, consistently in the last three and a half to four months across the uh, America and Canada. And when I speak with the Hindu community over here, it, it doesn't matter uh, what race they belong to. I'm just talking about Hindus in general, Caribbean Hindus, Caucasian Hindus, Hindus from India, Hindus from Pakistan, Hindus from Bangladesh different areas what they they tell me is that we get disturbed every time we see these stereotypes being created is because we are worried that it might percolate into our workplace where on many occasions even Hindus don't know what's happening in India you know that there is this assumption that every sitting Hindu on planet earth is a subject matter expert on a, and everything and they must have had an opinion and everything from indian politics to indian culture to indian religion it is it, kind of unfair so what happens is there are these caricatures that are created and and like do they even get what they're doing is my question malini or they don't even have a consciousness of what they're doing uh, uh, to to the larger community outside <laughs> india
1: um okay so do they get what they're doing you mean do Hindus get what these people are doing or no. do, the do the people who are people perpetrating
0: the latter the people who are doing this and perpetrating this I look I met a few a few of these journalists uh, I uh, okay I'll give you without taking a name of a think tank kind of a person you know these think tank people you know they they're very smart that person actually told me Modi is a Brahmin I couldn't control my laughter. I started laughing in front of that person. I was like, "Who put you in a think tank?" <laughs> if you, I mean, these are your experts on India and the Indian subcontinent, or uh, or as they love to call it, South Asia. Um, and these are the kinds of things like, "Oh, Modi." That the person was comfortably sitting. That's on one side. These are the people, and on the other side are there is a small clique of people who do read these people. Now, these people imbibe the values that these people present about India, about Hindus, about Modi. And then these people might be, let's say, your person in the HR department of a corporate company, just as a hypothetical. And then you're a Hindu working in that corporate organization and then you have to deal with HR. And then the HR comes and tells you, oh, are you like this? Are you that? And, you know, it's always that... the cascading effect of this is hindus start walking on eggshells outside india
1: okay okay yes all right let me tell you how they walk on eggshells in the west my most my most like you know foregrounded example would be that they don't display their culture so they attempt to assimilate which is not to integrate so our multicultural policy here is about integration like a type of mosaic where multicultures can exist, be sort of like a semi-pervious type, you know, groups so that they can maintain their culture within our culture whilst also uh, fitting in with everybody else. So we've got, you know, a universal type code, everybody fits in under Australian law, but within the law you're entitled to be yourself and to practise your culture. But we don't see that same type of pride in the Hindu culture in public as we would see of other cultures that are, you know, strong in their culture because there's a sense of wanting to fit in. So wanting to be more Western by not wearing, for example, tilak or bindi at work, for not wearing kurta or sari or even your kameez, which could be much more comfortable than work clothes, but they will wear jeans and business clothes and they'll fit in and and, and dress like Westerners and become fairly indistinguishable aside from their other cultural practices like language, um, accents, uh, food, they'll often eat different foods, Um, And then you'll have your actual practices and festivities, which will sort of possibly bleed into the workplace somewhat because certain responsibilities and stuff may end up bleeding into the workplace. And you may have certain views which um, are not typical of uh, what a person expects of a a person of colour, for example. We've seen that in, in UK recently that Um, If you're a conservative uh, person of colour or a successful person of colour, you know you're not fitting up to the expectations and you're a coconut, for example. Those types of language. But I don't think, um, I I think it's really important to um, be able to differentiate because my understanding is that Hindus generally have uh, categorised any type of discrimination against them in, say, the workplace or housing or in the shops or anything as racism, but they need to differentiate because Hindu culture and ethnicity is actually inseparable from their religion. So racism can have religious elements to it and religious discrimination and vilification can have racial and ethnic elements to it. So it's really important because if you're going to the racial discrimination uh, act to, to in order to get your discrimination case heard they need to also know about these religious elements because they can also contribute to forms of racism so like the curry muncher type term or why don't you eat beef or pressure to eat beef um you know throwing beef on the cricket pitch these type of things they're specific to hindus So um, I do think that there's a lack of uh, education among Hindus about how to take action, what kind of frameworks, policies, codes of conduct and so forth are available to them. Um, The media, what are the policies of the media? How do they make a media complaint? How do they express in which ways this complaint vilifies them? How does it affect their human rights? What's the human rights law? Like it's quite... uh, um, a complex system once you go through it. So I think the most uh, evident thing is that it's too much. And so Hindus have been sort of walking on eggshells in the sense of not displaying their culture openly in the secular space. They will display it openly in their cultural spaces, so there's kind of like a division, which is okay. I mean, you've got a secular and a and a religious space, that's okay. But you should be able to come to work wearing your traditional, comfortable, modern, modern, you know, classy-looking clothes, your bindi and your tealag, without feeling that you're going to be singled out for different treatment. So um, or you should be able to eat whatever you like. You should be able to talk about your culture or your beliefs at work um, and not hide it, not feel like you have to hide it. So, yeah, walking on eggshells.
0: Yeah, another thing that the, that was something very I found very fascinating, annoying, and hilarious at the same time was that a vegetarian Hindu is Brahmanical, which is, by the way, very condescending to the Dalit community. And, again, another one of those things that people don't realize about India and how many vegetarians exist in the Dalit community too. But that's a separate uh, issue. In, I'm not talking about India. But veganism is cool. Like, how the hell did they manage to do this? Like, if somebody else is a vegan and and you know what? I'm not making this up. I actually know a few Hindu kids now who call, they're not vegan. They just call themselves vegan so that they don't get the stigma of being vegetarian. They're yeah. not vegan. They just call themselves vegan so that they get accepted in the larger Western discourse when they're not vegan. So, I, you know, I was like, uh, because I had noticed that. So I was like, who is this milk drinking vegan? I said, what the hell is happening over here? But this is how it plays, right? When you create stereotypes, when you create the stereotype and eventually what are the second order? See, people are always obsessed about the first order effects, but... If you really want to see the discourse and if you really want to see the impact of something that is happening in society, you should look at the second order and third order effects. Now, what could be the second and third order effects of something like the vilification of Hindutva? uh, Basically painting anyone with a certain brush that does not agree with the larger political and it's a political issue, whether people like it or not. Uh, this is a political issue and people pretend it to not be a political issue. The rise of the BJP in India is a political issue for some many people sitting in India who have an audience outside India. Now they don't seem to get anybody in India to listen to them or read them or convince them about how Modi is this monster. So what they have now done is that they have found an audience outside India and they keep speaking to this audience outside India without realizing that when they speak to an audience outside India and they keep on typing or writing things outside India, it has these effects where vegetarian kids suddenly become vegan. I know Hindu children who have stopped calling themselves Hindus because they are so scared of the vilification that comes with it. Is it rampant? I'm not even trying to make a doomsday scenario. Uh, I'm trying to be as objective as possible. But the point is, it may not be rampant today it could become rampant tomorrow. And that's right. something that concerns me.
1: Look, I, I think it's important to know what is there and to know that we don't know what's what's there. So one of the, the, the biggest um, fallacies about Hindu phobia or anti-Hindu sentiment or anti-Hinduism is that it doesn't exist because there's no data. But if you think that through clearly, you'll say, okay, well, how can there be data? Because who is collecting it? So we've had data coming from other religious organisations who have taken some ownership and who get funding from the state to run quite extensive programmes to monitor anti-religious sentiment or racism, but we haven't had it coming to the Hindu community and it's, it's like that, you know, catch-22 when you say, well, do we need it? Why should we fund it if there's no evidence that it exists? But then when they do do a survey like the one I was talking about before in schools, and I did a survey here of 500 people which were from all over the world, I found that, that there was a significant number of Hindus who had faced some type of anti-Hindu sentiment, Hindu phobia. Whether that was in person or whether that was in the media, whether it was at work, there's so many different ways in which it's experienced. But we do know that discrimination impacts on persons of colour. And most Hindus, being from India or, some, uh, or from Asian ethnicity, ancestry, going back in time, even if they were indentured labourers and set up their own communities in diasporas, they still have that Indian ancestry and so they're generally persons of colour. We know that they do experience racism in, in the West, but what we've unfortunately done is to put it under that catch-all phrase of South Asian or anti-Asian, um, and we haven't broken it down like we have for anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. Um, we haven't looked at things like indigenophobia, pagan phobia, which are at the root of Hindu phobia and which differentiate it from all other types of religiophobias. And we know that Indigenous peoples all around the world have faced um, a spiritual persecution, religious persecution, because of their spiritual practices. So why would it be an exception for Hindus? It's, it, there's a gap in the knowledge is it has it been there all this time yes from from reading the history you can see that it was all there all this time so why wouldn't it be there now it's just totally irrational to think that it, it hasn't been there the whole time the problem is that the data hasn't been collected so we need to invest in in actual studies
0: so so if, if you don't mind, uh, how would a study like this be conducted? For example, how would you frame a study like this to, to actually quantify and qualitatively and analyze the effects? I, I like how you presented it, that this is not just endophobia. It has been continuing caricatures of the pagan community in Western society for a long time. And I 100% agree with you. After interacting with some First Nations people inside Canada, especially I have realized that that there's actually what, what I like to now call it Abrahamic privilege, where there is an Abrahamic way of looking at things. And then there is the non-Abrahamic way of looking. Look, I'm not, I, I, I'll be the first person. Look, I'm a disbeliever. I know every memaplex has problems. But the point is, that does not mean that Hindus do not face this problem because people. So I'll give you a small story. Uh, It's a detour, but I think you'll understand what I'm trying to say. So I was at this uh, get together in in Austin, Texas with good people. These are good people. And there were a few PhD candidates there. Right. So one of the PhD candidates was a student from China. Right. So this Chinese student, uh, she tells me, um, you know, I don't know if the Buddha is real or not. I was like, okay, good. I heard her out, but I like what the Buddha says. I was like, good. And then there were others. Yeah. And they started talking about the historicity of the Buddha. And, and I found that, that, that entire discourse very fascinating. And, and then I... And I, and I asked that student, I was like, <laughs> but why do you think the historicity of the Buddha matters? I just asked a very simple question to that person. And she, she did not understand my question. And then I said, and I'll explain to you why the historicity matters is because your mind is Abrahamized. I was like, just think about it. If Jesus was not real, or if Prophet Muhammad was not real, the entire edifice of those two religions collapses. Because history-centric religions or prophet or uh, prophecy-based religions do need that particular prophet to be real for something to happen. Now, I'm not even concerned about whether they're real or not. I think Jesus could be real. I think Prophet Muhammad could be real. I could care less. Not my my fight anyway. But the point is that whether Buddha was real or not was not the basic qualifying criteria for me or for any Dharmic person. But when she asked the question itself, showed that there is a certain conditioning of the discourse where the discourse is directed at you in a certain way where let's say if I was to ask someone, right? The American dollar bill says, in God we trust. Is it the Hindu God? It's a very honest question, right? Is it the God of the Hindus that they trust? They clearly don't. Is that problematic? No, I don't think so. It's okay. It's a, it's a majority Christian land. They want to have their Christian ways. Uh, as long as you know the, the state does not prepare certain policies that that declare the pagan uh, or the Hindu to be uh, persona non grata, I could care less to be To be very honest, I'm recording this podcast sitting in the United States of America. I really don't care. So what I'm trying to say is that the discourse is designed in a certain way. Now, if you were to actually prepare a study to measure these things, how would you go about doing that?
1: Well, okay. so I've done a a bit of a background study looking at the media, like the, the news stories. I've gone through all the digitized books that I can access. So, anything that's available to me that I can access where it talks about anti Hindu or Hindu phobia, it uses these terms anti Hindu, anti Hindu feeling, Hindu phobia, Indophobia. It also uses other terms which are quite comparable at the time. It uses indigenophobia, which is quite old, um, it uses um, uh, xenophobia, as you know. Uh, pagan phobia which was French it uses other words anglophobia russophobia how are these words understood when they came into being and what kind of circumstances were they applied so you can have a look at the historic background and say okay we can um identify from this historic literature these tropes these stereotypes these different times and see how they have actually um, they're a continuum. So the stereotypes were there from the colonial era and the continuum, it was just that they morphed a little bit and they were reapplied as the times changed. So the same stereotypes that were used by the missionaries um, were, still, are still, were still used um, in the diaspora, the early diaspora. They're still used today, Catherine Mayo type stereotypes, which we see in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. This sort of like, um, it's almost similar to akin to voodoo, voodoo type stereotyping, which also applies to other Indigenous stereotyping. So you can see there's this pattern which is actually played out all over the world. And you can hone in and pick out from that literature. These are the tropes that are continuously associated with these terms, these are the types of acts and activities and events that are continuously associated with these terms. And you'd think, actually, that this whole Zionism thing and Hindutva being attached to Zionism was some type of post-Zionist, post-anti-Zionist framework. You'd think, oh, they built up Zionism, anti-Semitism, and then they built up um, phobia alongside that differently, parallel to that, and now they've just come and attached it because they're sort of... Uh, the same activists are against Hindutva. You'd think that. But when you go back through history, there are these anti-Hindu manifestos. There was one called the Red Letter. Have you heard of the Red Letter?
0: No, I've not. Could you you tell everybody a little bit about it? Please do. Uh,
1: I can't remember, I mean, I, I, I'm i not good at, like, um, you know, photographic memory, but the Red Letter basically said that Hindus are oppressing us. They've got all the top jobs or they've got all the money um, and and all they're doing is that they're oppressing um, Muslims and um, Muslims should, you know, determine them, self-determine because, um, you know, there was um, these, these constant slogans throughout history that Islam is... Um, Islam is at threat in Islam is at, at risk and those were mobilizing of, of peoples that would then that would then go and enact uh, anti Hindu hate crimes it could be other tropes like there's been desecration of a Quran and in Kashmir there was a case where a police person was accused in the 1930s of um, desecrating a Quran and um whether or not it happened, he wasn't punished enough. And so what happened was then they took it out on the Hindu population. So we've seen these type of tropes and themes. There's like a manifesto that's circulating among the people to turn people against Hindus. And then there's this punctuated by incidents and events, whether it's true or not. We saw this in UK, the Quran came into it, it was torn up and it was all over the street and there was just this video of three people picking up the pieces off the street. That was in the build up to this um, temple attack and these mobs and, you know, these tropes and themes have carried out through history. So, you know, other stereotypes are there that would apply for white persons, white supremacists, white Australia policy type people. The people that wanted their country to be Christian and white. Um, and then there were the, the anti-indigenous type stereotypes that would come through, like your pagan cultures being backward and superstitious and non-civilized, savages. We see these themes continually. How would you how would you apply them to the study? Well, you got have to go out and speak to people, ask them. Us to survey them, interview them, and do a qualitative study to find out from the community, not just from the media. You can do a media analysis. We can see so many different hate crimes against Hindus. We know how it plays out from the media um, or from these incidents that happen. But how does it affect people in diaspora? We have to find out. We have to go and extract this information from the community and put it down into reliable peer-reviewed evidence. So that's the problem that we have, is we don't have the peer-reviewed evidence.
0: Yeah, and uh, and for the peer-reviewed evidence, I agree. So a study like this would have to be designed, a study like this would then need volunteers to go and actually do field surveys uh, in the ground, talking to communities, talking to multiple people. Again, you'll have to create a representative sample based on the community distribution and that would be different in different communities different uh, different areas across the world yeah it's gonna be tough but but in the meantime the academic world keeps producing paper after paper theory after theory uh, analysis after analysis without doing actually any real hard work right look anybody who does, study hindutva who does read hindutva ideologues i mean i have it's the funny thing is i have so many disagreements with them uh, especially on economics I, I have multiple disagreements with the hindutva ideologues and uh, the point is that when you try to do this uh, you know in, in, at least in discourse the the most honest way to deal with someone is when you request them to do a purva paksha which is a steel yeah. band, right? right you you ask them what do you make and and if and i hear these things they just they just write these things and and there is no scholarship there is no effort there is no citation there is nothing there's just narratives built on opinion pieces yep so and narratives, you don't need to fact check opinion pieces right
1: they don't even like if you just dig down two or three layers you get a report that's made by some think tank and you you look at their references, and then you look at the references of the references. By the t- second or third layer, you end up with things like News Laundry and The Wire and Quint, and you end up with known um, representatives of certain political movements or contributors to political fields. And you think, okay, so there's no there's Salvatore um, Barbones, so I think that's how you pronounce it. He's a um, Professor here, he's the only other person in Australia that I know that's gone through it all, and he's come up and said, this is just rhetoric. Where's the facts? Where's the data? You couldn't even get it if you wanted to because it's not collected. The data that they're referring to, like um, crimes against Dalits and rapes and discrimination against um, low caste people by high caste people, no one's going to deny that it's happened historically. But how much is it happening today? And how much is that to do with the BJP government these are the kinds of questions that I want answers to before I'm made to denounce things, but instead I'm made to denounce things that I don't have answers to, which I won't. I'm not, I'm not going to say I, I've been called a Hindutva and, you know, I'm this and I'm that. And from the get-go, um, when you ask them for a reference, that's what you get. You're a Hindutva. And, and I had never heard of what Hindutva was. <laughs> I, not even one of my teachers has ever talked to me about Hindutva. So oh. I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm a Hindu for now. Um, I don't know what it is. He talked about economics. I'm like, Hindu for economics? Do they have that?
0: Well, congratulations. You, you, you are also something that you also don't know about.
1: <laughs> I didn't even know I was practicing Hinduism for a long time so that's what that's what it is they just slap the label on you and if you look at the discourse on um i think the most problematic part of it okay let me just say we have australian values we have we have like i'm growing up uh into multiculturalism we take pride in the fact that we are you know a country that values different cultures that contribute to our society and we had this whole bicentennial and as kids we all went around looking at all the different cultures that make up our society so we were taught to identify as a mixed country multicultural country to respect other cultures right not saying that we did that that it, that, it, that it was instant and that it but i i love different cultures so of course i took this to heart and this is this is you know we don't We don't accept uh, racist treatment towards Indigenous Australians anymore because back when I was a little kid, (laughs) nobody talked about it. But by the time I got through to year 11 and 12, I was studying human rights and Indigenous peoples, you know, in college. And that's where I learned about the history of Australia and horrible things that were done, you know, the genocide and, and the crimes against the Indigenous people. Um, And then as I went through uni, I learned about things like Islamophobia and um, anti-Asian racism and, you know, the yellow peril and how this is all part of our history and sort of stemming out of that white Australia policy and, you know, how we've grown out of that and how we're moving toward a new type of society. We wouldn't accept this type of treatment that Hindus are getting if it was any other community. It's just totally against our values as as Australians.
0: But then, isn't this fascinating? Like, They're not even heard and registered. The the complete denialism. There's nothing else but denialism. Exactly. So, So what would it take for them? Like a few Hindus actually being killed or beaten up? That would convince them? What would convince them?
1: Well... Actually, I was going to open up my new definition and share it, but I please can do, tell you what do. it is. No, no,
0: please do, please do, please do.
1: So, from all of that reading, um, I came up with a, like a framework for what anti-Hindu sentiment is, and
0: good, it's good.
1: Um, my definition is um, anti-Hindu sentiment, anti-Hinduism, anti-Hindu sentiment, or Hindu phobia, which are all interchangeable terms. So they mean one and the same thing. It's a denial. Negation, prejudice, and vilification against Hindus, Hinduism, and Hindu ness. So you 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 notice one thing. Tell me what you noticed first about that definition.
0: Well, uh, I, you you end with Hindu ness. That was the first thing that I talk about. Uh, that I noticed. Um, <laughs> I was so tempted to call you Hindutva. <laughs> Because that's all Hindutva is. It is Hinduness.
1: It's like, water are a ducks back now? I'm like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Denial, <laughs> negation, prejudice, and vilification.
0: Exactly. But it, it's, a, it's a good working definition. I would actually, I, 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 I see where you're coming from. But again, you know, the funny thing is that even when it comes to anti uh, hindu phobia, um, they even want to define what a Hindu is. That's where the crux of the issue is. And and until you don't have clarity on what a Hindu is, you will not have clarity on what Hindu phobia is. And the problem is that, and and this is uh, this is a unique problem by itself because the Hindu community again. The Hindu community also has a problem within it where there is a section of the Hindu community that is uh, clearly with a lot of issues, uh, which is uh, isolationist. And and, uh, you have to, like, I'll share my, I've always said anybody who believes, uh, um, um, let's say, Mutual respect, reciprocity, and I have always called Krishna's Ahinsa because I think Mahavira's Ahinsa is pacifism, and I'm not a pacifist. So I always say Krishna's Ahinsa, which is a no first strike kind of a policy, but you have a right to self-defense kind of a policy. Yeah. And uh, um, I think anybody who believes that, in my eyes, is a Hindu now. Whether you believe in reincarnation or not, whether you believe in a deity or not, whether you believe in X or Y or Z or not, is is secondary. I think if you believe in those three things, I'm I'm pretty okay with that person being a Hindu. Now, when it comes to Hinduphobia, I agree with you that basically what is happening right now under the garb of discourse is where what they, I don't know how to say this, but uh, Malini, they don't like a Hindu that talks back. They were so <laughs> used to a Hindu that, that would just listen, put their head down, solve their tech issues, Run their 7-Eleven, own their gas station, and just put their head down and just live their life. That's what they wanted. Now, what happens is now the Hindu talks back. They don't. I think they don't know how to deal with the Hindu that talks back. Or am I wrong? Um.
1: Nobody likes anyone that talks back if they're a power tripper. Many <laughs> power trippers don't like people that. I think there's um there's a, I, I don't like to essentialize. like I don't like to think in terms of people having one framework of viewing things because we know that anti-Hindu sentiments come from a variety of angles. So Abrahamic supremacy, we've got white supremacy, we've got scientism, you know, Western scientism and the dominance of Western scientism. We've got, you know, it coming from racists and bigots, people who are anti-immigrant. It comes from a different range of um, of sources. So each to their own, each has their own um, lens in which they view the Hindu. Um, geopolitical interests probably do play a role. But I wanted to just put you, before we go into something else, I've got this definition of Hindus. Tell me what you think. Hindus are people who identify as Hindu, Dharmic, or Sanatani, who subscribe to Sanatana Dharma, and whose faith, which may include atheism, I thought of you, is grounded in diverse traditions indigenous to India.
0: Yeah, that's a good definition. I could, I, I could uh, yeah, like uh, my definition was more value based, and your definition is more uh, uh, generalized, uh, character based, and I think. That works too. That's a good definition. I I, I would definitely uh, um, do that. Uh, And uh, you know what the funny thing is? like When I hang around uh, atheists from uh, Western backgrounds, especially monotheistic backgrounds who have dumped monotheism, they find it so offensive that I call myself a Hindu. It's very funny. I I find it genuinely entertaining. I, I sit with them and they're like, oh, why do you have to call yourself Hindu? Drop the Hindu label. I was like, what am I, your servant or indentured labor now that I have to work it's with? It's Yeah, it's weird. And, and nobody does it. Only atheists from Abrahamic backgrounds do that to me. I've never had a single believing Hindu, a believer of Punarjan, a believer of Atman, a believer of karma. Anybody tell me uh, other than some crazy member in the corner uh, in, in what is loosely called the trad community that I, uh, I should drop the Hindu label in general, or most of my friends are believers. Most of the people who watch this podcast are believers. They know I'm a disbeliever. They still enjoy the podcast. They, they support it. They, they they do it. But I have this weird corner of, uh, you know, uh, to use a very funny analogy. That I thought the atheists were my people. I realized at least 15 years ago that, oh boy, they were not my people. I just can't relate right. to them. Like They're so hostile. They're hostile to religion. I'm not. They're hostile to most things in life. I'm not. I mean, uh, am I against uh, all bad things in all religions? Yes, I am too. But I don't make uh, like go around banging my head on the wall about it. But yeah, it's about uh, lived experience, and I think uh, the Hindu lived experience and the Hindu societal way of dealing with things is distinctly different. But okay, so before we wrap up, you know, I just wanted to take a few audience uh, observations and questions. So all right, so. So this this viewer has asked this question and I, I, I gave that person I, uh, my view uh, a lot of times, but I want to hear from you. So this person says, two days ago, I was walking in the city with my friend and two basically brown guys walked across from me and they spat after crossing us. Uh, the person is assuming they were basically Pakistani. So I guess, would you classify this as Hindu
1: yeah, okay, all right, they spat on you, you've got to find out. Okay, so a hate crime in the West is about perception of the actor, of the person committing the offence. It's, it's So you don't have to have the characteristics that they think you've got, but they do target you for some set of characteristics which are protected, like race, you know, sex, um, sexuality, you know, able ableism, you know, we've got all of these different uh, types of um, protected classes. So would I classify being spat on as Hindu phobia? It depends on how you view Hindus. And I believe that if you were targeted for your ethnicity, it is very likely that that racial element to it has something to do with Hinduness. And... As well, remember that Indophobia and Hindu-phobia were one and the same thing for a very long time. So even Sikhs and Muslims who were from the nationality of India were actually treated um, in the same way as Hindus and experienced Hindu-phobia. So it's a kind of um, a conversation that it it needs a lot more scholarly attention Are you going to be an ethnicity? I call Hindus ethnicity, faith and culture, identity, faith and culture, and that all together makes up their ethnicity. So those three features can be an act of Hindu phobia because they're inseparable. I mean, you're a Hindu. Why are you a Hindu? Because you've born Hindu in Hindustan and you identify with the peoples of Hindustan. You're culturally a Hindu, aren't you? but you don't have a faith in hinduism but your faith is still consistent with hinduism in the the fact that you don't have a faith you're allowed to not have a faith so you are still a hindu but not because you believe in shiva or shakti or Brahman. so yes it could be hindu phobia was it on the basis of nationality yes if it was it still could be hindu phobia does that make sense to you
0: yeah, I get it. I you uh, Yeah, so so the problem over here is that a lot of times the discourse in the West uh, confuses uh, um, the understanding of, and again, this stems from, uh, this is a uniquely Hindu and Jewish trait where, uh, you know, in Judaism too, you Jew, Jew, the, the Jewish identity is itself like a tribal identity and a racial identity and a subset ethnic identity all meshed yep. together. And I think uh, the only close parallel Hindus as a community find is in the Jewish community, and, and I kind of understand what your uh, what your point is. Okay, another interesting.
1: Right, Sikhs are also protected under race, race here as well. So oh. you tell me what the distinction is between Hindus and Sikhs. Why should uh, they be protected under race when we're not when Hindus are not protected? I don't care myself because I'm not ethnically Hindu, but I can still experience that ethnic prejudice by proxy because they associate me with people who are ethnically Hindu.
0: So my question,
1: that. exactly. Sikhs, Sikhs are protected by race. Hindus should be protected by race.
0: Yeah, but uh, that's not going to happen. And you know that.
1: <laughs> I think it's going to be a challenge, but it might happen.
0: Oh, let, let's be positive. So one more question. I, I actually genuinely love this question that somebody had asked. They they said, Is there any work happening in in Australia and New Zealand where the Hindu community that has migrated over there and do they have any outreach programs with the native, uh, you know, know, the Aboriginal community in Australia, the native communities in Australia? Because let me tell you, when I met the First Nations in Canada and I started understanding their faith, their worldview, they are so similar to Hinduism and they are Mm. so far away. And and these faiths have... uh, Uh, been far away from each other but similar in many ways and different in many ways. So are there any attempts like that in Australia? I, I, I like the question. Somebody actually did ask this. And I was like, yeah, I am going to ask this. Like, Is there an active attempt to bridge, uh, you know, build bridges between the, 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 the native communities of Australia and tell them, look, we are from India. This is our faith structure. It's very similar to you. And uh, maybe, you know, we can work together on certain issues. Uh, uh, is there any such thing happening?
1: I can't give you the names of them, but I have heard of them, uh, art projects and cultural projects. I know that the Hindu Council are very interested in pursuing more such projects. There's like a World Indigenous Conference, which I think didn't you hold that in India at some point yeah, I know. where everybody that, that came is, over? Yeah,
0: yeah, that, that, that does happen. I'm aware of that.
1: So we need more of this. Do they do it? I think that they would there would be more than what I know about. Um, I only know what was reported in the media. So. Um... The, the
0: the reason I wanted to do this chat with uh, Sarah is that, uh, or Malini as uh, she calls herself, and we should also call her that, uh, is that when it comes to studying Hindu phobia, it actually needs a theoretical framework. And a lot of people are attempting um, to create that theoretical framework. Now, slowly but surely, uh, in our um, in our community, the community has people of all races, colors, whatever you want to say. And this is an interesting attempt that uh, Malini herself has undertaken, and we should appreciate that. Uh, in fact, uh, if I remember correctly, I had plugged her GoFundMe even before, and I don't mind doing it again because I think it's important to plug... Uh, things that uh, matter and uh, you know if you want you can go and uh, support malini uh, and uh, support her uh, gofundme campaign over there i had shared it on the monologue again so you can go and support her over there other than that you can also follow her on uh, social media she's on twitter you can go and follow her there and uh, she has a, a Hindu Human report on Hindu phobia. You can go and read the Hindu Human Rights report on Hindu um, phobia too. And uh, as far as I'm concerned, you guys know the drill. You can subscribe to the channel, like the video, leave the comments below. And um, uh, uh, other than that, you can become a member on Patreon. You can uh, join the the YouTube membership program. You can buy the Charvak podcast merchandise or you can send your donations to UPI. Uh, once again, I apologize for the absurd ending in the end. Sometimes these things happen, but I can't control them. I still think we pretty much discussed everything. We uh, The technicals, which has happened only at the end when we were taking the audience questions. But uh, I will uh, once again apologize on behalf of both Malini and I uh hopefully the, she'll be back again on the podcast and we will not have these issues then uh i'll see you guys next time until then namaste take care bye bye